This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. We're in the book of Isaiah. We're going to read this together. I'm going to read it while we're standing here together, if we could. I know some of you already sat back down, so get back up. We've been going through the book of Isaiah. And we're in chapter 12 today. It's a short chapter, so I'm going to read the entire chapter. Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day that I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that that name, or that his name, is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Thank you again for being here. We've got a A lot going on, and and as we're looking through the book of Isaiah, we have been going through Isaiah since early this year, just hitting some of those major themes, looking at the the, the characteristics of God as he's revealed in, in this book. And today we're looking at the, the beholding the strength of God, or and actually it could be titled Behold the Grace of God as you look through this. I don't know how many of you, uh, especially adults, have ever had this thought come to mind. If I only knew then what I know now. Right? If I only knew then what I know now. What, what that might do is it might change some of the things that we did then that would change some of the things we had to go through. If we had only known then what we know now. I think that's why, why time travel movies and books are so popular. People like to think, what if we could go back in time? What if we could change something? What if we could, could, could make something happen that, that we didn't know about the, the ramifications of? We would do it a bit differently. And uh, we'd love to be able to do that. But we don't have a DeLorean, and we, we don't have all the, 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 whatever the stones are, the Avengers collected. We can't do that. We can't go back. But we sometimes wish we had the chance to look ahead into the future. And sometimes when you talk about prophecies, you look at these Old Testament guys, we think that that's all they talk about. It's rarely all they talk about. They talk about so much more. But every now and then, he gives us a glimpse. God gives us a glimpse in what is to come. We have chapter 12 here. It's a short chapter in the entire book. It's a huge book in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a heavy read, really. And in chapter 12, is kind of the end of a, of a section as it changes narrative in chapter 13. But in chapter 12, we get a glimpse of the future God has in store for his children. Of course, he's talking about in the context of that era, the children of God, the children of Israel. You have a nation known as Israel that has actually split in two. So you have the northern kingdom, Israel. You have the southern kingdom, Judah. And uh, they're all the people of God, but they're all a mess because the enemies are surrounding them. And uh, the northern kingdom has already really abandoned God. They've aligned themselves with some pretty bad guys. The southern kingdom has a king, but they are not necessarily following God's will either. And so when you get to the beginning of Isaiah, it gets pretty uh, negative immediately because it's like, it's like God is saying, I put up with these guys for so long, I'm just about done. I am up to here with my children. And uh, he's about to bring on some judgment. 
But in the midst of that, we see that God's character shines through as well, his love for his children and the grace that he offers. And so that's what we see in chapter 12, really coming to a, to a transition to what is to come. Now, God is the author of this grand story. Here's something we need to remember. And I think sometimes we, we know this, but we sometimes forget this, that the, the scripture, the Bible, the story is not about us. It's about God. He's the author of it. He's the hero of it. But here's what's so amazing, that God in his graciousness, God in his love for us, has decided that he will invite us into the story that matters and let us play a role. Let us play, not as the main character, but as a vital supporting character in a story where he is the hero. And when you think about how incredible God is that he would allow us to do this, that should really kind of blow us away. Because you look at it and you ask this question, or at least I would, what do I contribute to make this incredible story even better? What do I contribute to make the story holy? What do I contribute to make it worthy and worthwhile? And here's the answer, because I contribute the same thing you contribute, nothing. We don't bring anything to the table here. God is not impressed with our skill set. God is not impressed with us, and that's not why he picked us for his team. This isn't some playground kickball game where we're picking the kid that can kick it the farthest so we can win at recess. This is God saying, I love you so much, and you don't bring anything to the table, but I love you and want you to be a part of this. What does God bring? Everything. He brings everything. He brings all that is needed. And, and when you think about what, just the fact that he allows us in on this, that's that word grace. Now listen, I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one. I, I, I confessed this early this morning. I'm a kid that grew up in church. You know, I was in church my whole life. I was in Sunday school. I was in youth group. I was in, back when we had royal ambassadors, I was in that. I mean, I did all the church stuff, camps and trips. And, but it... <laughs> It was a long time before I really understood this word grace. Now, I don't know if that's happening for you. It may just be that I was the dumbest kid in the room. That could have been the case. But they would always talk about grace. Then the teachers would, the preacher would. It's about grace. It's about grace. And me, I'm just, I never really understood that. That was one of those church words. You know, you hear it at church, grace, or you say it before you eat. I don't know if that's exactly the same thing. But grace. And I would just sit there in class and go, yeah, yeah, grace. I didn't know what it was, but I wasn't going to admit I didn't know what it was. Until you start really thinking about when you dig into it, and I, I could have gone to a dictionary, but not only did I not, did not really understand what the word grace meant, I really, I didn't care enough to go look it up. I just, that's what they talked about at church. But when I finally kind of got a glimpse of this, and it really became true, really as I was entering into junior high, began thinking about that which I was taught, that which was uh, revealed to me in church and, and really before junior high, late as a preteen, began to understand some things that otherwise I had not understood. That I just took for granted. Grace is all the good things that God gives us that we don't deserve. And when you recognize we deserve nothing, it's amazing we get that. Now, we have the most famous of, of Christian hymns that has the word grace in the title. It's the one hymn that even lost people know the words to. It's in movie soundtracks, it's on westerns, it's in TV shows, it's the song Amazing Grace. We can at least get through the first verse and people that have never been to church can probably sing it because it's so popular. And it is an incredible song, Amazing Grace. I mean, it's not a modern worship song and I know Chris Tomlin put some chains in it, but nonetheless, the original was, was, is, is written by a guy named John who was a, who was a terrible guy. 
I mean, he, by his own estimation, he, he was a bad dude. He, he was a slave trader. Um, he was not somebody you'd want to be neighbors with. He was not somebody you'd want to hang out with, and you definitely didn't want to do business with him. He was, by his own definition of himself, a wretch, thus the song, Amazing Grace, uh, Sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The problem with songs that are in public domain and that are so popular and that we sing them at funerals and we sing them at church services and we sing them at pseudo-religious group gatherings and this, that, and the other is that while the song, I think, is beautiful and wonderful and the words are incredible and uh, there are a lot of verses in it too. We never sing all those other verses. Uh, We're Baptists. We don't even know there's a third verse in most songs, so we don't go there. But if you read the verses... And you think about what's being said, all of a sudden it becomes pretty clear that here's a guy that knew and discovered how sorry a person he was, and he did not deserve to be invited into God's story. He did not deserve to be forgiven of the sins that he committed. He did not deserve to be allowed in the family of God at all. But when he was and he surrendered his life to Christ and everything changed from the inside out and he became a child of God rather than just a creation of God, He penned this song, Amazing Grace, because he couldn't think of a better word to describe the grace that he just experienced, that good stuff he didn't deserve, that opportunity he didn't earn, that gift that was given to him. Grace, how amazing, how overwhelming, how undeserved. And I started to begin to understand that so grace is that ultimate gift because if you have to work for it, it's not a gift, it's a payment. It's a gift. And God has this incredible story that's, that's kind of planned out and it's happening and God's love for his children, that love is, is love that is unearned by his children, by us, by his image bearers. That love is undeserved. We don't deserve that. And um, in fact, um, good things in Christianity and getting to heaven and all that, we, you can't even get that just by being a better Christian or being a better person or by trying really hard. And, and, and sometimes that just needs to click at some point because we are in a culture of just work a little harder. I mean, you want to be a D1 athlete? You need to go, go work out more than the guy that didn't work out in practice. You want to you uh, get a, get a, a, win American Idol? You just got to work harder. You want to be a singer? You got to work harder. This is not how grace works. Working harder is not the answer. God offers hope. He is sovereign over all. He is the creator of all. He continually provides a way for redemption, for hope, for life, and his plans are not changing. Think about this. God is never surprised. God has never said the words, well, I never saw that coming. Think about that. Of all the challenges in life, of all the difficulties that come, of of all the things that you face, God has never been blindsided. And God is inviting us into his story, the God of sovereignty, the, God, the sovereign God of all. And that's that grace, that gift that's given to us, that undeserved grace. There's another old hymn, the chorus goes, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Man, I don't know about you, but I've known people that, uh, you know, you invite them to church, you invite them to try to do the religious thing, come to church, and they're like, man, you don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. And I respond, I don't want to. But I can imagine. Here's something you don't know. God knows it. And he's still inviting you in. That's amazing. That's amazing. The prophet Isaiah said that it was 
in this passage and in all the previous passages, the, the grace of God began to be un- unfolded before him in ways that he did not deserve, nor did he see coming. He said that it was the grace of God, really, that kept him from dying in the presence of a holy God. When that moment happened in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah went into the temple and God appeared in the temple and he saw him sitting on a throne and all these angelic beings were flying around. And this says again, I, I, we read this a few weeks back, but Isaiah chapter 6, it says, One of the seraphim, one of those flying angelic beings, flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. That is one of the strangest passages I've ever read. I try to imagine that taking place. I try to imagine just regular everyday coming to church and then seeing an angel jump up and come at me and burn my lips off and think, well, that's good. But that's what happened. And as he's in the presence of God at that moment, you know, he's amazed that he did not die because he was in the presence of a holy God. He's like, I don't even deserve to be here. I don't even deserve to have this conversation with you, God. You have revealed yourself as so holy and so good and so incredible. And yet you have saying, hey, I've got this message I want to send out. Who's going to go for me? And I'm like, well, I want to, but I have dirty lips. I say dirty things. And I come from a nation of people that cuss and say things and think really bad thoughts and are evil in all their ways. And God said, let me clean that up for you. And he burns his lips. I guess it didn't really hurt. But anyway, it's what happens. And Isaiah said, but for the grace of God. Grace was given to the people in Judah, the southern kingdom. If you were here a few weeks ago, I mentioned this. I won't go into all of it again, but God uh, sent the prophet Isaiah to the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and said, hey, we've got a way. God is providing a way. God is going to forgive you. God is going to uh, give you victory. All you have to do is surrender to God. And the king of Judah pretended like he was, oh, pretended he was much more godly than he was because he wasn't godly at all. And he said, oh, far be it from me to even ask God of such a thing. And really what he was saying was, I'm an idiot. Watch what I do. That's what he was saying, because I'm rejecting God's plan. I'm rejecting God's way out. I'm rejecting God's rescue, because I don't want God to get the credit. And so the people of Judah found the judgment of God to come upon them, but not everyone. In Isaiah 8, it says in verse 11, the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they call fear or what they fear, nor be in dread. He is giving a a message of hope to the people in a nation that are living in fear and are believing lies that are true. I think that verse, verse 12, I don't know. I don't see this one on bumper stickers, but I think I'm going to get one. Don't call conspiracy all that everybody else calls conspiracy. Do, you know, that was back then. Did you realize that's still happening today? You know, despite the people that walk around with tinfoil on their heads and black helicopters and everything's a conspiracy and everybody's out to get you, not everything is. Sometimes there's just right and wrong. And if you believe a lie and call it truth, you're going to be afraid. There's grace for the people of Israel who had, that nation had been labeled a godless nation. But God spoke to them even in their godlessness. There were some, it says in verse 20 of chapter 10, in that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That is a promise of hope to a small group of people in a large crowd. The nation of Israel had rebelled against God as a whole. They had abandoned God as a whole. But even so, in the midst of a huge population of a nation, it says there was a remnant and a small group, a minority that stayed faithful. And that minority that stayed 
stayed faithful, would remain faithful, and God in his grace would see them through the difficult times. Perhaps that's what we need to kind of remember now in a culture that seems to be going mad, where all the rules are changing, where truth has been traded in for a lie, and, and things just aren't as clear as perhaps they may have used to be. There's always going to be a remnant. But here's something about a remnant. A remnant will never win an election because a remnant's never the majority. A remnant will never get the popular vote. A remnant will never be most popular, most likely, because that remnant would be those believers in the midst of the unbelievers that are staying true in the midst, being light in the darkness. You know, some of you students, you understand that, being light in the darkness. That's a churchy phrase, right? You need to be light in the darkness, be light in the darkness. Reminds me of the story of the lady. She went to her pastor. She was so frustrated. She had just become a believer. She went to her pastor to meet with him. And on that, it was like on a Monday, and she set up an appointment and said, hey, you know, pastor, I'm a believer. I, I know I need to shine my light. I want to be a Christian. I want to love him. But I really hate where I work because all the people there are lost, and they talk about all the stuff they do over the weekends, and they're terrible, and it's nasty, and it's this and that. It's so sinful. Oh, it's just terrible. I really want to find a job in a church or a Christian organization or a ministry, if you, if you could help me and pray that I will find that so I can get out of this job that I'm in where all the people are lost except me. And the pastor looked at her and he said simply, well, where do you put lights? Well, she ignored that and just kept going on about how terrible it was to work where she worked, how all the people around her were terrible, of all her peers and all the people at the offices nearby were just talking badly and they were gossiping and they were sinful and they were what they'd partying on the weekends and this, that, and the other. And the pastor looked at her and said, where do you put lights? And that went on over and over and over again. And finally, the lady gets pretty frustrated at her pastor because he's not helping her at all because that's, you know, pastors are supposed to have answers for everything. And she finally got mad at him and said, you know, I'm bringing you my real concerns and my real prayer needs. And all you keep saying is, where do you put lights? I am so frustrated that you keep saying, where do you put lights? It's the simplest question. Where do you put lights? You put lights in dark places. And it was at that moment when she said it, she realized what she'd said. That sometimes as Christians, if you're going to be the light of the world, God's going to make sure you stay in a dark place so you can shine the light brighter. Now, you need friends and you need others that you are connected with in your church family. But if every Christian worked in a church or in a ministry, what does that say to everybody else? It says, join our club, but we don't want to hang out with you. You guys are going to go out into Clay County and Orange Park. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you've done demographic studies or not, but the majority of people that live around here are not Christians. The majority of people that go to churches around here are not Christians. So when you get into the conversation about what the gospel truly is with individuals, why you think all you're doing is painting a room or moving some mulch around and God provides that divine encounter, it's okay. You don't have to have the Bible memorized. But you need to shine the light because it's a dark place everywhere and not just here. Isaiah was talking about the grace of God and how incredible it was. Let me, let me fast forward to verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1 again. I read it earlier. It says this, you will say in that day. You will say in that day. That, that's kind of a directive thing, you know. So Isaiah is giving them a prophetic word. Isaiah is anointed by God. The Holy Spirit is speaking through him. He is giving insight into what to come. And th isn't this what we want? Don't we want to know what's going to happen? I mean, I want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'd like to know how things are going to work out. I want to know if what I do today, what it's going to happen. At a very simple level, I want to know all 64 teams in NCAA March Madness before they announce them tonight. I really want to know that. Why do I need to know that? Because I just want to. It has nothing to do with 
anything important, no, I'm not betting on it. I'm just telling you. Prognosticators are all over television today telling you who the last teams in the tournament are going to be and who the teams are not going to be in the tournament. And some of you are going, what is he talking about? Because you have not been redeemed to become a basketball fan like others are. And we're praying some things change in your life this week. But nonetheless, March Madness is happening. And there are people trying to pick what's going to happen. There are people on the news trying to tell us what's going to happen in Ukraine. They don't know either. Ukraine's much more important than what's going to happen in a basketball game. But we always want to know what's going to happen next. Isaiah says, you will say on that day, here's a message of what's going to come. Here's a message from the one who owns all the timelines. Here's a message from the one who never said, I didn't see that coming. Here's the message from the one who has it all planned out. This passage gives us words, and words matter Words yet to be uttered by those to come. These are words of the remnant, the words of the faithful, the words of Christians. And I understand it's an Old Testament passage, and we are hundreds of years before Jesus ever gets born in this. But there is a whole movement to deconstruct Christianity nowadays, and there are a lot of people who are seeking to pull Jesus out of every book in the, in the Bible that his name is not actually written within. I'm here to say I believe Jesus is throughout not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament too. And as you read the Old Testament, we are looking forward to that cross. While Isaiah may not fully understand all that he has been prophesying, the father who gave him the words is, and when Isaiah says there's going to be a baby that is born to a virgin and his name is Emmanuel, and he, God with us, and that's going to happen, we know now because we are blessed to have 2020 hindsight and the written word before us to go, he was talking about Jesus. Jesus is all over the Old Testament as well within the New, and that doesn't take away from the context of the actual things happening at that time. But let me read to, this, read to you this one more time, this verse. I want you to catch the first word of chapter 1 where it says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Now there's a theme there that we don't talk about a lot in church, and we definitely don't have it in a lot of our, our Bible study classes, and that's the fact that before you became a Christian, now I'm talking to Christians, before you became a Christian, God was your enemy. There was no gray area in between. There was no, well, I go to church and I kind of like the concept of God. It says, God, sin. God, is the enemy of sin. Sin is the enemy of God. Our hearts are depraved by our birth. We are sinners by nature. Therefore, we are enemies of God. But how crazy is it? How crazy is it that the God who is our enemy, the God that is the enemy of sin, will rescue us and our enemy becomes our father if we would just surrender and go through the son. Though you were angry with me, Isaiah says, but because of the grace of God Almighty, we are now his, forgiven, clean, made right, no longer enemies, but family. See, that's the message the person out there that says, you don't know what I've done, needs to hear. That the one you think is your enemy is the one saying, I want you to be a part of my family. The people of Isaiah's day, this remnant of God followers, needed that word. They needed reminding that the strong God of judgment, who was their enemy due to their own sin, was also the same God who was offering them an opportunity to be forgiven, to be redeemed, to be rescued, to be holy. Verse 2, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now, I know I'm bouncing a little bit here, but, but think about this. Let's go to verse 3. With joy you will draw well, water from the wells of salvation. 
I'm not doing a lot of water drawing from wells recently. I tend to turn on faucets. And when they work, it's a wonderful thing. Or if it's like our gym and they don't work, water goes all over the gym. But you guys experienced that this morning. Thanks for being here. But when you think about wells, my grandparents had wells in their houses uh, years ago. They had a pump on it, but it would pump the water up, and you would get a well, you know, bucket of water out of that. Think about what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 7. He said, if anybody thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here it is. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, when we surrender our lives to Christ as our Lord and Savior, we not only have access to a deep well, as was referenced in Isaiah, a well of, uh, with joy. We get this water from the well of salvation. But according to what Christ himself said, we being transformed by God's strong grace become the conduits of that living water that is within us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are not containers of grace only, but we are distributors of grace. Now, we'll plaster on posters and T-shirts and everything else that we love God and we love all people and we want to make disciples. But you can't love people if you're not distributing grace. You can't love people if you're not a conduit of God's love. And, and Jesus said it right here, out of the believer's heart will flow rivers of living water. If it's not flowing, then you're holding on to it. And if you're holding on to it, it's kind of like that water that sits stagnant in a ditch and mosquitoes eventually get on top of it. And then it maybe starts stinking a little bit. We have never been designed by God's grand plan to be containers of his grace, to just hold it to ourselves and not give it out. You know, Jesus even said that even if you give a cup of cold water in my name, it, it is ministry, it is something that is valuable and important. And I know that's about literal water in a cup to somebody who's thirsty, but I think it may actually mean something a bit more when you look at it in this context. When you spread the love of God intentionally to others, recognizing that you have become a river of living water, a distributor of that, God does great things. The Christian who, does, who receives and does not give the believer who has the living water but does not share it with other people is a stagnant pool, a dead sea. And that person, by virtue of not being what God said we must be, is not of God and is definitely not obedient. For God's salvation flows in endless freshness. Verse 3 again. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that the name, his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now, I'm not a real language scholar here. Ray Ortland has helped me understand some of the things in a commentary I was reading, but if you look at the first word of chapter one, you see the word you. And that's pretty easy for me to understand in English. It means you. But what I've begun to understand as I looked at this a little, different, a little deeper, that the word you in the first few verses is a singular you, a you as an individual, a, a one person you. Isaiah does this intentionally, obviously, by God's design. That you in verse 1 is singular, so the prophet is saying in that day, that day to come, that which will happen, you as an individual will say the things that then follow. That's why there are so many I's and my's in verses 1 and 2. 
Because what, what Isaiah is revealing here and what the people need to remember here is that God is a, is a personal God and he is a relational God. And that God saves people individually. So there's a lot of people like me that grew up in church, but it did not matter that I had church membership or a Sunday school membership. It didn't matter that I had been to vacation Bible school. It was a great thing that my mom and dad were Christians, but, but them being Christians didn't make me a Christian. It was, it's a great thing if your grandparents or your grandfather's a pastor, but you don't get to heaven on the tail of your, of your grandfather's ministry. See, God is a God of individual relationships. Last week, we, we've, we've had our fair share of funerals here in our church family this year and last year. Last Thursday, uh, we had a funeral service for one of our dear ladies, uh, <clears throat> Patricia. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lady. When I, dear saint of God. And, um, but I got to know some of her story I didn't know prior as I prepared to the funeral service with her family. And so I'm talking with her family and, uh, you know, all of her hobbies and getting all that information pastors do for services such as this. And what does she like to do? And uh, then we started talking about church life. And I knew she'd actually used to be a, a secretary to church in Brunswick and served there for many years, very faithful. But I asked him, I said, when did your mom, when did your wife, when did she uh, surrender her life to Christ? And the story goes that about age 10, she was at church and she had been to, she was one of those that was at church before she was born. So while her mother is expecting her, she's at church in the womb. In the old days, we called it the cradle roll. They'd even put you on a roll just to make sure we could count you because we count everybody, right? But anyway, she's born, she's raised in church, she's going to GA, she's going to Sunday school, she's got all the Baptist stuff, she, she loves church. But about 10 years of age in that little church in, Br in Brunswick, Georgia, uh, I was told that the pastor preached a sermon. At the end of the service, there was a time for response, an altar call, if you will. And she, at 10 years of age, stood up. Now, her best friend was sitting right next to her, grabbed her by the dress and jerked it and pulled her down and said, your mama said, don't get up. This is not the time for you to go to the bathroom. She was kind of getting on to her best friend because everybody has that friend that'll yell at you. Oh, don't look at him. Quit looking at him. You're doing it right now. See what's happening. They're taking care of him, right? Your mama said. And Patricia looked at her and said, I'm not going to the bathroom. Jesus is calling me. Now, as a 10-year-old girl, the response was clear in her mind. That it did not matter that her mom and dad were active in the church and loved Jesus. It did not matter that she was actively in the building every time the doors were open. Somehow, the Holy Spirit, through the message the pastor preached that day, revealed something to her that she needed to know right then. And Patricia, at 10 years of age, did not have a seminary degree, nor did she ever have a seminary degree. She had not read the Bible all the way through. She didn't know all the words to all the hymns. She is a 10-year-old girl in a Baptist church who stood up at the moment when she said, I just know God is calling me. Jesus is calling me. And she got up, she walked down, and she had a conversation with the pastor. And shortly thereafter, in a day or two or a week or two later, she was baptized as a symbol of that decision that took place in her life. And that childlike faith reminded me, as she, it was revealed in her life, of a lifelong, uh, many decades of following and serving the Lord. That her born-again moment took, took place in a church service after years of preparation. God had been working on her and drawing her. And she finally said, it's time. Because God is a God of relationships. And God loves individuals. 
And God provides a way for each and every one of us. And nobody gets saved in a group. There's a reason it's a narrow gate and a doorway, not a wide gate, and the whole flock joins together. Now, I mean, I've seen this, right? I've been, I mean, I've been at youth camps and events for many times. I've seen, uh, here's an altar call, and here come 30 people together as a group coming to know the Lord or make a decision. And then it's the responsibility of the leaders to go, who's really making a decision? Who's really called? Who's really coming? Because sometimes there's a lot of support people, and that's fine. That's good. And sometimes each person in the group is coming to the Lord. But here's the thing. Nobody comes as a group. Every decision must be individually. And that's what Isaiah is saying. When he's saying this, you will say this in that day, he's saying to you as an individual, you will have the relationship with God because salvation is not corporate. But then you get to verse 3 and verse 4. And you have another version of the word you. And in English, it is you. But the definition of the word used in those verses is plural. It's corporate. It is an individual at that point. And for those in the South, it means all y'all. That's what that is. There's y'all, then there's all y'all, right? So all y'all, when you get saved. So, so, so what he's saying is this, is there is a moment where you as an individual must recognize who God is in your life. You must have a moment where you recognize when you have surrendered your life to Christ, when it became very real to you, when you uh, said no to the old life and said yes to the new, when you surrendered your life to Christ and repented of your sin and became a Christian. Because you can't just say, well, we went down as 20 of us together and we all made a, prayed a prayer. Uh, maybe it was that, but maybe not. Because it's an individual thing. Many of you in the past have already surrendered to Christ. You're believers. You're Christians. You have recognized that your life, as in all of our lives, was defined by the sin that you were born with, that you lived out very well. Because you recognize nobody is good on their own. Nobody's good enough. The goodest person you know isn't good enough. Is that proper English? But you remember it. The goodest person you know is never good enough. All we do in our lives is we try to find someone we can compare ourselves to. So as long as I'm better than that person, then I'm a good person. The problem is we tend to run out of people, so we just compare ourselves to Hitler all the time. Well, at least I'm not Hitler. Well, praise the Lord, you're not Hitler, but you know what? I'm also not Jesus. And while we're trying to find the sorriest person we can compare ourselves to to feel better about ourselves, we probably ought to be looking at Christ and go, I don't measure up. That's why I need a Savior. That's the good news of God's grace, that he did provide Jesus to become the sin that I have committed. Jesus, the way of salvation. Jesus, the hope of all. Isaiah prepared the message through his prophecy, and others in the Old Testament did as well. And we do have a great benefit to already know he has come. But salvation is individual. Groups don't come to Christ. People do. And the Spirit draws people individually. And many of you have already been drawn and have said yes, and thanks to God for that. But others of you have not. Some of you maybe have attend church here every week and you've yet to. Some of you may be on a mission trip and you've not done so. And so somehow God had to move you out of your hometown so you could hear him clearly? It could be. And some wonder about this. Could I, could I, do I even want to do this? But know that the strong, gracious God who is has orchestrated this day for you to hear this clearly. 
that he has a way. He has provided a way for you. And Jesus Christ is the way to hope and the way to life and the way to forgiveness and the way to a new identity that is not defined by anything else that you may have experienced. And God has removed every barrier you could possibly come up with that would keep you from salvation. So understand that becoming a Christian is very simple. And I use that word intentionally. Simple in the fact that acknowledge that sin is within you. That God is the enemy of sin. But God has made a way through Christ and Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for all the sin for the glory of the Father. He became our sin. He paid our bill. And if you would confess that, repent of your own sin and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are in that moment born again, a new creature in Christ. It is so very simple. But simple and easy are not synonyms. Because it's not easy. Because some people say, oh, so it's easy to become a Christian. It's simple to become a Christian. But why, if it was so easy, so many more people would do it. Why is it not easy? Because people in their heads are already going, what do I have to give up to become this? What will everybody say? What about my parents? What about my friends? What about my coworkers? And we will talk ourselves out of the right thing to do more often than we should because of fear. God has removed every barrier that could possibly keep you from being saved if you're not. He is that strong. But he waits for your response. For the Christians in the room and those that are joining us online today, you have, may have bought this message that our culture loves. It's the culture of individualism. That's one of the greatest tactics of the enemy, by the way. I don't know if you've noticed this. Whether it's online lifestyles or, or just friendships changing nowadays. And even in the church, isolation is a tactic of the enemy. To get us alone. To make us feel lonely. To make us feel like no one understands and no one cares. When the enemy went to Eve, he tried his best to ignore Adam, so he focused on one. Let's isolate you, and then let's isolate the two of you from God. The enemy tempted Jesus, the son, by isolating him and pulling him away from everybody else into the wilderness. The enemy will do everything he can to find the times when you are alone, and the attacks will come. And you think and will think that that's normal. But even as Christians, we will fall into that isolationism. And we believe the message of individuality so deeply in our culture that we sometimes see church gatherings such as this as little more than a club or just a gathering place or something to do every so often to reconnect with friends for events, but not really necessary. And we all have heard it, or maybe we have said it. You have heard those say, well, I can worship God. I don't have to go to church to worship God. I can worship God on the lake. I can worship God at the beach. I can worship God at a ball game. I can worship God while I'm fishing. And the answer is, well, yeah, certainly you can. The problem is you won't. Well, you don't know me. You're human. But there's something about the corporate togetherness that must not be abandoned. And can I just say that corporate worship cannot be found online. And for those who are online, we've saved you a seat. And some can't get here, I understand. But others can the corporateness of worship, the gathering together. There's something about being together in this. Memories are made. Lives are changed. That's part of God's story. And it says in verse 4, you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that the name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known on all the earth. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. 
For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And let me tell you, the word you in verse 4 and the following is not an individual you. It is a plural you. So individually you come to God, but collectively you will sing praises to the Lord together. You will worship together. You will serve together. You will give thanks be unto God. And your brothers and sisters in Christ are there to help you along that journey, to protect you. This is the corporate you, and it is so very important. Sing praises to the Lord. Your Bible may say the Lord God, or in the Hebrew, the Yah, Yahweh, for he has done gloriously. I'm thankful we're able to gather as we are. I'm thankful to have all of you here with us this morning. But I know the enemy's desire is, is to take us out and to keep us from doing that which God has called us to do and from being that who God has called us to be. And for some, that may mean just being a sitter who takes in all the glories of God and holds them in a bucket rather than distributing them out to those that need to hear that. And for others, it's just abandoning the togetherness that God has provided. But let's go back. Perhaps there's somebody in the room today or somebody online who in that singular you, you have never said yes to Jesus Christ. And for some strange way, God has orchestrated you hearing this today so that you could hear his invitation to know him. I pray that you will, that you will confess your sin, you'll surrender to him and say, I'm tired of playing these games and let's do this right. There are students here from Family Church, West Palm. You have many youth leaders here that are with you that would love to talk to you more about that if any of you have these questions. We would talk to you as well if you'd rather not talk to someone that's getting on the bus with you to go home later. But it's real. And I don't think it's accidental we're together today. And I actually believe there are some people in Orange Park and surrounding areas that will hear the gospel for the very first time because the collective you have come to bring that message to the individual yous that may hear it today, this week. And the mission will continue. We want to behold this gracious God and behold the strength that he has. I'm going to ask our band to come up. They're going to close us in a song. With a song. And then at the close of the service, I'll be down front as well as others if you need to talk to us about membership here or about knowing Christ, or maybe you just need to pray. But let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for your word and for your truth, and we thank you for what this prophet said thousands of years ago to a people group that have been dead longer than, than we've ever can even have been alive. And yet the words that were written and the words that were said and the words that were spoken were to a people group on the other side of the planet that needed to hear them at that day. But apparently you needed us to hear them on this day, in this culture, at this time, for some very particular reason. And for each individual in the room, that reason may be different. But collectively we understand this to be the case. That we are your church, chosen by you and redeemed by you and saved by you for a purpose greater than anything we could come up with. And we are so thankful that you have shown the grace that would invite a group of us who are undeserved, who are defined by the sin that we have committed before we came to know you. You have invited us to be part of your family. And for the Christians that are in this room and watching online, you have transformed us from just creatures of, or creations of God to children of God. Thank you for that. May we never get bored with thinking of how overwhelming your grace is. May we recognize how you work in our lives. 
And for the individuals here today that may not have a relationship with you, may not know you personally, may not be secure enough to say that they're 100% certain that if it were to end for them right now, that they would be in your presence with you even now. Lord, may they surrender fully today so they may behold you well as the Lord you are and as Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and